Good morning, church. My name is Dalmu. I serve with the City Arts Department and with microchurches. The scripture reading for today is from Matthew 3, 13 through 17, and 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point at the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Delmo. In 1996, one of my favorite spiritual formation writers and authors, anybody read a Henry Nouwen book in there? Anybody know of him? He passed away. And uh, it was said that he was working on a project that he wasn't able to finish. And so some other people gathered his manuscripts and ended up writing this book. Uh, but it's kind of an odd story at the end of his life, how he began to travel with a group of trapeze artists around Germany. Here is a priest, a pastor. Later in life, uh, this is not a picture of Henry Nouwen, by the way. Uh, that'd be weird. He began to travel around learning about this. He was just fascinated by it. He was actually sitting down with one of the trapeze artists and they were talking about uh, the flyers and the catchers and what it, what it meant and how to do all these things. And there's actually some pictures of him learning how to do some of this. And as he's sitting down with one of these uh, flyers, they say, uh, the goal of this is that you have to have complete trust in the catcher. The public thinks that I'm the star of this show, the flyer, but really the star is the catcher. The flyer does nothing but stretch out his arms and the catcher does everything. If the flyer tries to be caught or moves or positions themselves to try to do something in order to be caught, it'll just ruin it all and they'll fail horribly. The key is, you guessed it, letting go. You can imagine letting go of the rope, flying through the air, knowing you have no control over what happens next, just knowing there's somebody else on the end of that that's supposed to catch you. In Henry Nouwen's life, he said that this is going to become a metaphor for the end of his life. What it means to truly surrender and let go, not to try to help God out. Anybody try to help God out sometimes? I know I do. 
Not to try to say, you know what, I need to do this or that, but what does it mean to fly through the air and let go and knowing that there's somebody on the other end and it's only up to them whether or not you get caught or not. The art of surrender is difficult. Last week, if you were with us, we started this series, Nevertheless, with Jesus in the garden, one of the most beautiful and difficult prayers where Jesus says, this cup of suffering I wanted to pass, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This week, it's a similar theme as we move into the wilderness with Jesus. Both the garden and the temptation stories are about surrender and whether or not Jesus will choose a way other than the cross. This is the questions that we wrestle with in this scripture. Will Jesus choose the cross or will he choose a way out? Subsequently, it's about us whether or not we are going to choose the way of the cross because how many know nobody signs up for the way of the cross? If I can go another way, I would rather not suffer. I would rather not die. I would rather not go down that path. Nevertheless, God, I submit my life and surrender my life to you. We know that we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel writers give us their unique perspective about the different stories. In fact, only, it's only Matthew and Luke who give us the birth stories. And so some of them pick and choose which stories to tell. But all four gospel writers give us this baptism story of Jesus, which is significant for us. That means it's, it's an important part where Jesus inaugurates his ministry and it's kind of launched out into his ministry. And think about this moment where Jesus goes up to John the Baptist and says, I want you to baptize me in water. And John the Baptist says exactly what you and I would say. I think this is backwards, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, you're going to baptize me because I'm about to go do something in your place that you can't do. And we have this beautiful moment where it says the Holy Spirit comes down on this moment and we hear the words, this is my son in whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. Can I tell you one thing I've learned in about, what, 17, 18 years of full-time ministry now? I don't care if you're a business leader, CEO, leading thousands, making millions, or you work in retail, no matter who you are, your socioeconomic status, I think you deep inwardly desire to be affirmed by someone. There's a lot of people walking around with deep father wounds and mother wounds. We long to hear the words, you're loved not because of what you've done or what you do, but because of who you are. That you don't have to go strive. You don't have to go work for my affection. No, you can just rest in it. Does anybody else long for that? I know I do. I long to hear the words that you are unconditionally loved and that will never change. Think about this moment of God looking upon his son saying, man, you don't have to strive. All the ministry you're about to do, you get to live out of this overflow of love, my love for you. How beautiful is that? That is the gospel story. Not that we did anything to earn it, but that God loved us first and rescued us when we couldn't be rescued. That is the message of the gospel. And then we get Matthew chapter four, verse one. You remember the original manuscripts, there's no chapter and verses, right? So this is not like, oh, weeks later. This is immediately. It says the word then. Then. So you have this beautiful moment at Jesus' baptism where the spirit falls down. And then it says then, immediately. The same spirit of God that just came down and affirmed Jesus at his baptism now leads him into the wilderness to be tested and tempted. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it for a second, all right? Because that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. What we think is Satan led Jesus into the wilderness, but that's not what the scripture says. It says the spirit of God 
led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. That's significant for us. What do we get in the two stories when we compare and contrast them? First, there is a spirit baptism, and then we get a spiritual battle almost immediately. First, there is a voice from heaven, and then there's a voice from hell. First, there is comfort, and then Jesus experiences conflict. First, there is strength, and then we see weakness. First, there is water, an abundance of water, a baptism, and then there is a desert. First, there is refreshment, and then there is dryness immediately in these stories. And I don't know about you, but I've actually experienced this pattern in my life where I am like living on the mountaintop when I'm coming off of a, a really high experience and then immediately I go into a season of testing and discouragement and disappointment. Anybody ever been there? You know what the toughest day is for every pastor? Ask them. Monday. It's Monday. You know what the, the toughest day of the year is for a pastor? Ask them. It's the day after Easter, right? It's like you're on this high, you're mountaintop and you come down and then you're just like, I have nothing left to give. I don't want to see anybody. I'd rather not even be here right now. And then you get these thoughts of discouragement of what you should have said and what you wish you'd have done better and it's you're not enough. And I mean, I'm telling you, it's just the whole cycle. Maybe you've gone on a retreat, you've experienced this at a church service, a time of refreshment, a time of God drawing near, a time of vision, renewal, whatever you want to call it. And then immediately you move from that season into a time of testing. You're like, what happened? Like two days ago, I was on the mountaintop and this does not feel like the mountaintop. I think it's something we all face sometimes. See, if God is calling and empowering you to do something significant for the kingdom of God, I'm telling you, you're going to be tested. In fact, there's a lot of people who want a significant calling, like, God, I'll do anything. I want to go. You have the significant calling from God. Will you better be prepared for a significant test? Because that's how God prepares us and refines us. The same Holy Spirit that came down at Jesus' baptism is now leading him into the wilderness. The word wilderness in the Greek is a ramos, which is desolate place, isolated place, desert, wilderness. It is not a place of abundance. It is a place of scarcity. You know what happens scripturally in the wilderness or desert or pasture? It's a place where our identity is tested. It's a place where you may think you know who you are, but now it's going to really, where the rubber meets the road, where you're going to have to discover, do I believe this or not? The pattern in Matthew 3, 13, 4 through 11 that, would, that was just read but to us by Dalmo is this. Number one, Jesus' identity is affirmed at his baptism. We see that. Number two, Satan feeds Jesus a lie about his identity. And then number three, Jesus responds to each lie with scripture and his true identity. Like I said before, it's one thing to know the gospel. It's another thing to live it out. I don't know if you've been in this awesome new lobby space that we're still just in awe of out here. Like I, I, I told you, like it's going to take a couple weeks for this house to become a home, right? Last week, like our sound system was on wheels over here. Now it's in the ceiling, right? It's beautiful. It's great. We're going to have a sign up soon. Like we're learning so many things. Thank you for being patient with us. We didn't have internet the first service. Now we have internet because we realized it goes out about every five minutes here at this building. So we're learning things. We're discovering things. It's a beautiful process of making a house a home. But you walk out there, you see this beautiful, your kingdom come, your will be done in Tulsa as in heaven. You see these five big blocks on the wall, colorful blocks, and you're like, why did they put so much writing on them? Those are our five kingdom foundations, the five essential teachings of Jesus that we build everything on. You ask a lot of Christians, what is the gospel? And they think they may know. We've actually learned that a lot of people don't know what the gospel is. 
Like it, it, it's a free gift, the good news that, that Christ has rescued you, redeemed you. Then our second block is identity. Identity is how you actually live out the gospel. Not false identities that the world will give you or the enemy gives you, but your true identity as sons and daughters of God. Do we know how to live in that? See, in this scripture, what's about to happen? Jesus is alone. Jesus is vulnerable. He has been fasting for 40 days. I, I guarantee you not many of us have fasted for 40 days. Liquid only. Like I've done some long fasts, but 40 days, I, I think I'm sorry so thin, I would be nothing left. 40 days is a long time to break you down physically and emotionally. Some of you right now, if you started your fast and not, not everybody's just doing food, maybe you're doing social media or TV or shopping, whatever it may be. You, we started on Ash Wednesday a few days ago. So the toughest time of your fast is right now. Amen? It's right now. You're trying to rewire something that's so like ingrained in, in what you've been doing and your behavior, like you, you're giving up social media and then you sit down somewhere and you just, you don't even have to think about it. You just get out your phone and you begin to scroll, right? Because you've been so hardwired to do it and now it's like uncomfortable or you, you watch TV and now you're giving it up and you're like, what am I supposed to do with my life? I just read for 10 minutes and I'm bored, <laughs> you know? Like some of you are there, I get it. You're giving up caffeine or sugar and those first few days are painful, aren't they? There are spiritual disciplines that come natural in my life and there are sp spiritual disciplines that are so difficult for me. Fasting is hard for me. I'm hangry and I don't like want to do it. And I start, I start imagining food. Are you with me? I've shared this story before. Like I'll in the be beginning in the fast and I'll go down the road and I'll see a sign for like Coney Islander. Never once in my life have I craved a small little hot dog with chili cheese on it. But I will look at it and be like, I want that so bad right now. So bad. Never happened before. Does anybody have any comfort food? Like your cheat meal that you just go to? Mine's chicken wings. Not like Buffalo Wild Wings, that's trash. Like Wingstop. Like lemon pepper, seasoned fries, Coke, large. Come on now, that's where Jesus lives. It's gonna take a long time for them to get it to you, but it's beautiful once you, once you can get it. Come on, some of you know the struggle. And I'm in the middle of a fast and I'm like, I, I just, I want that so desperately. It's almost sad, isn't it? Like in the middle of the fast, you're actually like, I am pathetic <laughs> and so weak. Anybody else feel that way? Because we're a few days in and there's some of the rewiring happening and God is changing our desires and we're taking control of the flesh and we're trying to tell ourselves, I'm not gonna be dictated by that or this. Can you imagine Jesus 40 days? He's vulnerable. The enemy sees an opening. Oh, he's vulnerable. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move in in this moment and I'm going to attack the very thing that God just affirmed. Anybody with me? And this is my son and who I'm loved. I'm well pleased. What does the enemy say? If you really are the son of God. Because that's what the enemy does, doesn't he? He attacks our core identities. Let me tell you, God will never ask you to prove your identity. You know it's from God if he says, I need you to rest in it. I need you to accept it. Our identity is that we are rescued. The gospel is good news that we've been rescued. It's not bad news you're going to hell. It's good news that God intervened and did something, right? So we have to rest in the identity that you're sons and daughters of God, whether you feel like it or not. That's a truth. The enemy will always tell you to prove it. The enemy will be the one that says, no, uh, I don't think so. It's been a long time since you've been to church. 
right? You need to do a little bit more. You need to strive. You need to perform. You need to work your way into it. We don't know everything about the spiritual world, angels, demons, the spiritual forces, but we get glimpses in scripture. Here's what I've learned. As Americans in our Western civilization, spiritual beings, angels, demons, spiritual forces are not a functional part of how we naturally see the world. A lot of us are pretty skeptical. We're products even of the enlightenment. Every effect has a physical cause. All phenomena can be explained rationally or scientifically. So the spiritual realm to many of us, even if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, has very little effect on our daily lives. You've probably heard me say this a million times. If I could pull back the physical and we could see the spiritual for a moment, your prayer life would change forever. You would pray like there's no tomorrow. You would realize the spiritual battle daily warring in your life between good and evil, light and dark. But in this biblical worldview, we get a world that's thoroughly supernatural. That spiritual forces are constantly at work. Angels do God's bidding. Demons actively and energetically oppose the kingdom of God. There is light versus darkness. That miracles, physical healing, gifts of the Holy Spirit are essential element, elements that actually constitute our reality. But how many know, unlike the cartoons that you see, Satan does not show up in a red suit with a pitchfork, does he? Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if he did? You're like, here comes Satan again. This guy, every time he talks, nothing but lies, right? Like you already know what's going to come out of his mouth is the lie. That would make it so much easier. But as Sid, what does the enemy do? He comes disguised as our own thoughts most of the time. He comes disguised with good ideas ways out of suffering and discipline in the way of the cross. He comes with lies and de deceptions. All of these things. In this story that we just read, Satan comes to Jesus with a trilogy of good ideas, good ideas, that would ultimately save Jesus from the way of the cross. I, I hope in this passage we just read, you you're picking up the echoes of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the Adam and Eve, Eve and the serpent. You remember that? Did God really say? Eve, did God really say? Is God withholding good things from you, Eve? It certainly looks like it because if you see it with your eyes and it's pleasing to your eye, how can it be bad? Did God really, really say to do that? Let me give you a few of Satan's tactics. This could be a whole sermon series and a whole message. And let me just give you a few of these that I see from scripture. Number one, Satan will always claim to know more about God than God himself has revealed. Let me tell you the rest of the story that God didn't tell you. So what, that's what the enemy does. It's subtle. It, it's, it's not overt. He doesn't show up with a pitchfork and a red suit. He makes it look good. And let me tell you what the enemy will always do. He will always play to your personal insecurities. And so you better know your chink in the armor. Are you with me? You better know where you're susceptible. You better know where the enemy would, if I'm gonna go after you, I know exactly where to go because this is your deepest insecurity or this is where you could easily abandon the way of the cross for your own way. Number two, Satan will propose, uh, excuse me, Satan will claim to have special insight into God's motives. Don't we see that in Genesis three? Let me, let me tell you what God really meant. Number three, Satan will propose an alternative to the cross that avoids discomfort, discipline, or the way of sacrifice. Well, why does the enemy want you so bad to choose another way other than the cross? Because the way of the cross and discipline and these discomfort produces the fruit of the spirit and life and joy. The things that the enemy doesn't want you to experience. Satan will sow seeds of doubt or confusion regarding God's goodness or truth. 
what scripture really is. You don't have to suffer. The enemy will tell you, you deserve this. You deserve better. You deserve more. And does your father really care? If he cared, why would you be experiencing this brokenness? Does it really matter what you do with your life? It's your life. It doesn't affect anybody else. Who will it hurt? He will find a way out and it will seem good and pleasing. The last one is this, Satan will exploit our pride and seek to elevate our personal desires to the highest value. This is how the enemy has deceived a generation and a culture right now. Nothing is more important than you. You find what you want. You actualize your deepest desires. Act on them and you'll find out who you are. No, you won't. Because ultimate purpose in life is not found in you, it's found in him. Satan has no control over us but he has lies and he has deception. And how many know deception can be a powerful tool? And where you're not rooted in who you are, when you don't know the gospel and your identity is not being lived in that, how many know you are easily deceived and misled? And, and you can get mad at me for all, this one, all you want on this. And I always make these comments. Remember, I always say, man, email me, mad at idontgiverib.com. I'll reply to you within a day. We went through political seasons where we saw what happened when followers of Jesus got misled and deceived. They exchanged the fruit of the spirit and sacrificial love for politics and power. And what it means to say, we're gonna take up our swords and we are gonna legislate the kingdom of God. Politics are not together evil. They are not the primary way God brings his kingdom. He has called us to a life of sacrificial love. What happens when the church gets deceived, misled, where we exchange the fruit of the spirit and take up our swords and wanna fight what happens? See, you, you may be here today, and what I love about City Church is we have people all the time that walk into our room uh, in this church that you haven't been in church in a long time. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. You've given up on church. You're like putting your foot back in the water again. You're a little bit skeptical. Um, maybe you just took a long break. Maybe it was just a little COVID break for you, right? And it's like three and a half year later, and you're like, maybe I should come back. I, that's great. We're glad you're here. Seriously, we want you to find a place where you can discover Jesus, you can explore what that means. In a minute, we're gonna come to the table and there's people that are gonna come to the table with us and you may not be there yet. You may need to sit in your seat. You're just like, I'm, I'm not that place, that's okay. We love that. But I want you to see how the enemy works. The enemy sows small little seeds into our heart. And again, he's going to sow that seed in your area of insecurity. Why would you go back and try this again? All these people are fake. That pastor just wants your money. Just wait for it. He's going to talk about it eventually. Right? You got hurt the first time. You're the idiot for thinking it's not going to happen again. Or here's a, here's a big one right here. You can love Jesus and be a spiritual person. You don't need the church. You don't need the body of Christ. You don't need these other people. In fact, they just get in the way and complicate things. Love Jesus, but you can reject his bride. The seeds of destruction that God sows in our hearts. If you already lean towards cynicism, you're a little bit naturally cynical or kind of bitter towards some of those things. Let me tell you, what's the enemy's going to do? He wants to put somebody in your life who's fake, a hypocrite. See, I told you. That's what everybody does. Thought. Seeds of destruction that Satan sows into our lives. What, what do we do? when Satan sows that seed of false identity, of a lie. What do we do with that? 
are we equipped to respond with truth, with, to respond with scripture, to respond in our true identity? Because remember, Jesus' identity is affirmed at his baptism. Satan feeds Jesus a lie about his identity, and then Jesus responds each time to the lie with his true identity. Let me give you some examples. The temptation number one, if you are the son of God, Satan says, tell these stones to become bread. Satan looks at Jesus, you're the son of God. Use your power. Use your power. If you're hungry, eat. If you're hungry, eat. Why would you be the son of God and not want to use what's in your hand? It's like driving a Porsche and not ever going over 40 miles an hour. That's kind of defeats the purpose. If you have it, do it. Don't just sit here hungry, feed the flesh, feed your desires. If you're hungry, you should eat, right? Like your sonship is a privilege to be exploited. If you're like the, the master, if you're the king's son, wouldn't you think like, man, this is my castle. I'm gonna do whatever I want. Use your power, the enemy says. She to look at what Jesus says. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, I'm feasting on something you know nothing about. Jesus would say, I'm not going to trade the temporary fleeting moment for eternal. I'm not going to trade the shallow for something deep. I'm not going to trade the moment for reciting joy. He took control of the flesh. No, I'm not going to turn those stones into bread, even though I could. Let me tell you, I'm on day four or five of them fast at times, and I would like, I would love to turn those into chicken wings, right? If I could, I would. But he doesn't. He has control, discipline. He says, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to feast on something greater. That hunger will come and go. You eat on one thing and guess what? It doesn't satisfy and you're going to need something in a couple hours to satisfy you. I am going to feed on something that never leaves. Temptation number two. Let me say this to you real quick. These three temptations, they start at like street level and they go a little higher to the temple and then Satan takes them to the, to the highest place over all kingdoms. Let me also say this. I don't have time to get into this, but every time Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds from the book of Deuteronomy, right? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying what the Israelites were incapable of doing in the wilderness when they failed under Moses, I am now capable of doing through the power of the Holy Spirit within me. It's powerful. I'm the new and better Moses that's going to lead you out of the Exodus, and I'm not, we're not going to return back to the wilderness again. It's this beautiful image that Jesus gives us. So in the temptation, here's what, here's what the enemy says. I'm, he's standing on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Do it. Let's see something spectacular, Jesus. Make it happen. And then actually in the second temptation, Satan misquotes scripture. He misquotes scripture. How many know Satan knows scripture? Satan knows scripture better than many followers of Jesus know scripture. Come on now, shout me down when I preach it good. And he misuses it. He twists it toward his own benefit. That's not what God actually meant by that. And he quotes it and says, just throw yourself off here. God did not give you these promises for you to be stupid and foolish with them and test God with them. This is like you ever, as a kid, you jump off your roof with an umbrella because you thought you'd float to the ground. No, you deserve your broken ankle because that's stupid. God's not going to catch you and float you down because you shouldn't jump off the roof anyway. This is what says it. Do something spectacular for us. Show us you are the son of God. And he says, it is written, do not put the Lord God to the test. 
Look at this last one, temptation number three. Satan takes him even higher. He shows him all the kingdom of the world. I used to say this, you ever, uh, your mouth write a check that your body can't cash, right? I used to say that growing up in sports. That's what Satan does right here. He offers Jesus something he doesn't have authority to give. But here's what he's saying to them. All of this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. I'll give you all of this. This, I think, is the most significant temptation because here's what the enemy is ultimately asking Jesus to do. Abandon your calling. Don't go to the cross and suffer when you can have glory. I'll give you the kingdoms and thrones and rulers and, and you can have all the power. Look, you can, all the great leaders that went before us like Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus and the emperors and all these things, that could be you if only you choose a way other than the cross. If you'll abandon it right here and right now, you don't have to suffer, you can rule. How many are grateful that Jesus overcame that temptation? And he didn't give in to the kings of this world. He didn't trade his heavenly inheritance and heavenly kingdom for an earthly one. He knew that earthly kingdoms are gonna come and go. Power, powerful people will come and go. He knew that his kingdom had to come through sacrificial love, that he had to pay a price for us. And so he looked at the road to Jerusalem, to Golgotha, and he said, you know what? I'm gonna walk down this road for you and me. Did he want to? No. Remember, Jesus is fully human. In, in the garden, we get the human side of Jesus where he's sweating drops of blood like we talked about last week. It was emotional crucifixion. I do not want to suffer. Nevertheless, I surrender my life to you. Jesus says, away from me, saying, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. As we wrap up this morning, these three things. In the wilderness, Jesus confirms the way of the cross and sacrificial love as the way of his kingdom. It may sound weird and paradoxical and counterintuitive, and it is, that Jesus says, you want to go up, then go down. You want to find life, then lose your life. In the wilderness, Jesus becomes an example of how to be led by the Spirit and not our flesh or desires. You do not have to be led by your flesh. Galatians tells us the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other and you're going to give in to one or the other. During the season of Lent is about us taking control of the flesh. I will not be led by my desires. I will not be by the, led by the flesh. God, you're going to reorder and reshape and it's going to be a struggle and I lean into the struggle, but I know the struggle is going to transform me. How many know when we end this season of Lent and we've reordered things in our lives, there's no regret. Have you ever been there? You're like, man, I, I feel free from some of the things that have controlled me. I don't feel like I have to go there. In fact, I, I feel this newfound freedom of just being, like I can have solitude with Jesus and I can be alone with myself and I can, all these things and like, I like to read books now and I can do other things that I never did before. I can be attentive to God again. It's beautiful. Is it a struggle? You bet. Let me remind you in the season of Lent, we are not earning God's affection. We are just reordering our desires back to him. Amen? Third one is this. In the wilderness, Jesus lives in his true identity and not the lies or false identities of the enemy. 
He confirms his identity. He lives in light of his baptism. I'm loved. I don't have to prove myself. I'm loved by God. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I can rest in that. I can live out of that. I don't have to go searching for life and meaning in other places or other people or relationship because I am perfectly loved by the creator of the universe. Amen? It's only appropriate this morning that we end with Henry and Alan since I started with him. I love this prayer that he prays. It's a Lenten prayer. One thing I love about Henry Nowen is he's honest. Let me pray it over you. The Lenten season begins. It's a time to be with you, Lord, in a special way, a time to pray, to fast, and thus to follow you on your way to Jerusalem, to Golgotha, and to the final victory over death. I'm still so divided. I truly want to follow you. But I also want to follow my own desires and lend in ears to the voices that speak about prestige, success, pleasure, power, and influence. Help me become deaf to these voices and more attentive to your voice, which calls me to choose the narrow road to life. I know that Lynn is going to be a very hard time for me. The choice for your way has to be made every moment of my life. I have to choose thoughts that are your thoughts, words that are your words, and actions that are your actions. There are not times or places without choices. And I know how deeply I resist choosing you. Please, Lord, be with me at every moment and in every place. Give me the strength and the courage to live the season faithfully so that when Easter comes, I will be able to taste with joy the new life that you have prepared for me. Amen. If you would this morning, stand to your feet with me across this room. During this season of Lent, we remind ourselves that we are people of the cross. If we want to experience life, then we have to go through death. And we willingly embrace that. If you would, just right where you're at, just begin to prepare your heart right now to receive the body and the blood of Jesus as we're about to come to the table. The table is a holy space, a thin space where heaven and earth collide, where God wants to meet you this morning. No matter what you came in with, God is here to meet you. You're bitter, there's doubt, there's confusion, there's fear. You're overwhelmed. God will meet you at the table. You're joyous. You're living on the mountaintop. God will meet you at the table and celebrate with you. If you would right now, just begin to prepare your heart for what God wants to do in you. Amen. As we prepare ourselves, you would look toward the screen. We're going to say our table liturgy together. Let's pray this prayer. For the weary, the table is our rest. For the burdened, the table is God's embrace. For the sick, the table is heaven touching earth. For the doubting and confused, the table is God's mystery revealed. For the bitter and hurting, the table is God taking our pain. For the anxious and worried, the table is our immovable hope. For the divided, disconnected, the table is where we become one. For the unbeliever, the table is an invitation to take Christ. At the table, we declare, Christ has died, Christ is risen. Christ will come again. 
It's at this beautiful space that Jesus took the bread on the night he was betrayed. He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. We do this every week. We come to the table as a family. And it's a reminder that we are all different. But when you step out of your seats in a few minutes and you come to the table, you're coming with your brothers and sisters. You may not even know their names. You may have never met them. But we are realizing together corporately that we are nothing without Jesus. The cross evens the playing field, that we need him more than anything. And Jesus took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. I was broken and given to you so that you could be made whole and be put back together. If you're broken this morning, Christ's body is your healing. If you're broken in your body, in your spirit, in your soul, Christ this morning through his body wants to put you back together. And then Jesus took the cup, the cup of his suffering, his blood. He said, drink this. As often as you do this, remind yourself it was the shed blood of Jesus that covered your sin. Right now, we just remind ourselves we could not rescue and save ourselves. We were dead in our sin. And Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. And one day we get to stand before the creator of the universe and he will not see our sin. He will see the blood of Jesus. And for that, we give you thanks. We say thank you. Thank you so much. If you would, just right where you're at, close your eyes. Just prepare your house or your heart to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you however the Holy Spirit wants to minister to you this morning. If you're serving communion this morning, if you would go ahead and come this way and grab the elements and take them to your section. Father, we thank you this morning for what you're doing in this place. We thank you that you meet us where we're at, in our brokenness, where we're at, Father. For the bitter, for the hurting, for the discouraged, for those who are struggling with physical health this morning. Those who are mentally, mental health is in a dark place, Father, you meet us here. God, we thank you, Lord, that in this we find life. We thank you, Father, as we wait with you, that you're doing something so powerful in us and through us. But we thank you for that right now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let me say this to you in just a few minutes as we get out of our seats. You're going to go out the right side of your section, come down to the front. They're going to break off a piece of bread for you. You can dip it in the juice. You can take it right there in the moment, or you can go back to your seat and take it. There's something powerful even as we wait together. As you step out of your seat, you're going to have several minutes where you're just waiting with the family of God. And that's not wasted space. It's not wasted time. It's a powerful time where God moves. We just wait on God. We stay in an attitude of prayer. As a family, we step out and say our allegiance and our devotion is Jesus and the cross and the body and the blood. As you feel led to take communion, go ahead and step out to your right. Come forward. Let's come to the table together this morning. So, take your own to bed.